Is this a dream? No, it's not a dream. I'm an angel. Why would God send me an angel? Because God knows that everyone needs a little coaching now and then. I'm loving angels. I saw an angel. Oh, angels say, Hi, and welcome to the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends, and join our community at eu.vc. Today, we're happy to welcome Pranav, currently EMEA General Manager at Airwallex a $5.5 billion global payments and financial platform for modern businesses. Prior to joining Airwallex, Pranav spent five years at UK fintech GoCardless in a variety of roles, including strategy, international expansion, and running the global SME business. Since starting angel investing in 2021, Pranav has invested in around 25 primarily B2B fintech and SaaS businesses and as an LP in one fund. If you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Verban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Verban's end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on what matters supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation and they've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, Vaban will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on the Vaban platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt and SpaceX. If you'd like to learn more, please check out www.verban.io forward slash EUVC. Pranav, welcome to the Super Angel Podcast. We're so excited to have you with us. Thank you very much for having me. I am equally excited to be here. Thanks for joining the pod, Pranav. I'm really excited to have you on the show as I think you're one of the most thoughtful operators I know. So do you want to start by sharing a bit your story to the listeners and also what got you into angel investing? Yeah, 100%. So my name is Pranav. I currently run Airwallex's EMEA business. Airwallex is a fintech platform for global businesses. So we help businesses of all sizes to collect, convert, hold, and, and send money around the world. We're a pretty reasonable sized company, a couple of hundred million dollars of ARR, valued about five and a half billion dollars, but relatively more recent in the EMEA region. So the business came out of uh, out of Asia. I've been here since April of last year. Prior to this, I was also in fintech, another business called GoCardless. Um, I spent nearly five years there doing a whole bunch of different stuff, strategy, international. And then the last two and a half years, I ran our, our SME business around the world. And actually, it was that GoCardless experience which got me into angel investing because I was very, very, very fortunate to be able to spend time with and learn from two guys who I think are one of, used to be at least one of a couple of the most active angels in Europe, one being Matt Robinson and the other one being Carlos uh, Gonzalez Cadenas, who's now obviously a partner at Index. And so those guys got into Angel probably 2019 or so. I spent a decent amount of time with them. I talked to Carlos and Matt a bunch about what they had seen, what they'd done. And I thought, well, I don't have the same amount of liquidity as these guys, but I can at least... 
uh, have a go and, and see if I can learn some of the same things that they are. And so that was really how I decided to make my first step in. And subsequently, I think the Go Cardless crew has also been quite active as, as angel investors. So people like Erez as well, also out there. Um, and Hiroki does a bit here and there as well. But I guess for me, the thing that I, I realized was unlike a Carlos or a Matt or a Hiroki, I'm still quite early in my career as an operator. And so for them, I think they can get into almost any deal that they want because they are very well known. They've got now huge portfolios. Ultimately, they, they're the kinds of people who have the value of the network effect. And so for me, I thought that doesn't yet apply to me. I'm still not at that stage of my career. So what else can I do to try and get my foot in the door here and, and start building deal flow? And um, yeah, that kind of brings me to where I am today and, and maybe the approach that I follow. And, and perhaps we'll talk about that as we go through the conversation. I just wanted to touch on something you said there, which was I didn't have the liquidity like these guys. If you'd be open to just, you know, I'd love to hear how you thought about your portfolio setup and everything when having to consider, wait a second, I, I don't have huge liquidity at this time. So how do I get started in this? The way that I thought about it was to say, I want to get to a certain number of investments in my portfolio, because I think at that number, it starts to make sense from a um, returns perspective. And using that number and also a view of how much of my total investable assets I was happy to allocate to Angel as an asset class, you can then back solve into what the right ticket size is to start with. For me, I think the number is I want to have you know 50 plus, you know 50 to 100 um, investments. And obviously I have my own view of, of how much money I have in general. And that then allows me to then back solve into how much of a ticket should I start to ride. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm really glad to have had the you know, advice to do is not to start by investing big checks, you know, here, there and everywhere, um, which I've, I've seen some others maybe start with and rather start the opposite end of the spectrum, which is write smaller checks maybe than you ultimately could afford to but then give yourself the optionality to increase ticket size as you get more proficient, you get better deal flow, and hopefully also you get um, the opportunity to invest in in more and more attractive deals. You know, having now done, uh, and you'll tell us how much and, and all of that, like, do you want to share maybe with the audience a few memorable deals or one that's close to heart? Yeah, sure. So I guess I'm now at the place where I've done somewhere between 25 and 30 deals uh, across a whole bunch of different markets many in the UK because obviously my network is probably strongest here, but also several in Europe, uh, in the Middle East, and also in, in America as well. So really quite a global um, spread. I don't know if I've got any you know particularly memorable ones, but it's actually quite a pleasing uh, bit of symmetry today. So the first company I invested in, the first angel ticket I wrote, actually just today announced their seed round, which has been led by Fly and, and Passion and, and so on have participated in it. Um, so that, they're a brilliant team, um, Luba and Irina, they're ex-Monzo, and they've built an AI a platform to help uh, customer support businesses to analyze customer feedback and make the whole you know, life cycle much more enjoyable. They literally just announced it. They, they closed the raise a while ago, but they literally just published the release uh, a couple of hours ago. And I just thought that was quite a nice bit of symmetry that the first one I've done has subsequently uh, raised on the day when we're recording this. And actually, and I want to just go a bit off script and, and ask, you did talk about the UK because you're very close to the UK, but you also talked about much, much further out. So how do you think about managing also international investments or what's the thread by which you, you think about that stuff? I think it always should come back, or at least it does for me, come back to what is your long-term play and your strategy. So my long-term play is I want to get to a portfolio of 50 to 100 um, investments 
my strategy to get there is to spend my first couple of years focusing on building a body of work that means that I can get access to really high quality opportunities to invest. And so the consequence of that is that my strategy is to try and double down in areas where I believe I can actually add value to the founders who I'm you know, lucky enough to invest in. And the follow on from that is that I therefore try and index to bits of the market opportunities or else potentially capabilities or, or experiences that I've got where I can actually give something to the founders. And that therefore means that I can afford to be quite geographically agnostic because I'm not constrained by worrying about SEIS or worrying about whatever, but rather I can follow where I can see opportunities that fit my broader plan. And how do you think about the deal flow then? Because where does that come from? And how do you think about building up that funnel when, when you are geo-agnostic? It comes from three areas, primarily. Uh, one is from VCs. And so I'm very lucky, you know, Anthony, but, but also many others to have relationships with people where we share thoughts, share deals, and just talk about what we're seeing in the market. One is coming from other angel investors. So people who have been doing this much longer and much better than, than I have. And then the other one is coming from either operators or from founders themselves as they're starting to you know, have ideas and, and want to get into creating something and, and building. My view is that I'm quite clear about what my value proposition is as an angel, which is if you do B2B SaaS and ideally B2B SaaS and fintech, and you're doing it you know, in an international context, I have a bunch of experience and a bunch of lived experience that means that I can probably offer you something, whether it be my network, whether it be my points of view, whether it be data points, whatever, um, that will hopefully help you to, you know, to be more successful. And so using that, I then say, well, how can I try and build a relationship with the VCs, with the operators, with the angels, where I put that as part of the value proposition and use it as a way to build hopefully mutually beneficial relationships. I just wanted to kind of mention that because I think it's been mentioned twice before, one with Keith also with Anna and Noor, which is just an observation from some of those conversations, which is actually the more focused you are within your value proposition, let's say that's a sector focus or a business model focus, the more it feels like it's more manageable to go cross international borders versus vice versa. The more generalist you are, the more it has to do with proximity to the ecosystem for access, which is actually quite interesting. On that, Anthony, I think it's maybe a stage thing as well. So when you're earlier in the cycle of building an angel portfolio, I think it helps to have something that you anchor yourself around. As you become more and more experienced, actually your value becomes partly the network that you have within your own portfolio. And so you know, just having the ability to connect people to 100 companies is in itself a valuable thing. Whereas you know, when you're not at that point, and I you know, no, I'm, I'm certainly not, it helps a lot to be able to say to somebody, hey, you know, thank you so much for dealing with the admin of my tiny check. <laughs> Here is something that I will hopefully give back to your to your cap table. No, I think that's it. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Like your intention to where you want to focus will end up basically getting you to much wider and, and broader because the network you create with your portfolio will take you that side and direction. So I guess a step back before we go to segment two, which we'll talk a bit more about strategy and, and investment thesis and all of that. Uh, which is, what do you think? I mean, if you look back, right, uh, what would you say has Angel Invested given you personally and professionally? So I think personally, it's given me a lot of energy because I think there are not that many things more energizing than spending time with people who are super passionate about solving interesting problems. And so for me, that just really gives me a lot because 
it inspires me, it, it teaches me, it gives me exposure to people or topics or geographies that I may not know that much about. And that I find personally a very stimulating thing. I think professionally, it's also helped me a lot because partly from the point of view of building relationships, whether it's with VCs, operators, angels, you know, that's been a very useful contributor to me on a professional basis. Also increasingly, I, I now see companies that I've either invested in or thought about investing in from a commercial perspective as well. So, you know, Airwallex might be able to serve them. They might, you know, be a partnership opportunity. There might be something of that nature where we could collaborate. And so I think those two things, you know, sit quite nicely together. And probably again, going back to the point around focus, if you happen to spend time focusing on things that are adjacent to what your, you know, most of your professional life is spent on, that's also a very, you know, easy way to keep that connectivity and, and strengthen some of that value that you can offer to the companies you're investing in. Oh no, thought about the thesis. Could you just run us through, you know, sectors you're focusing on, number of investments, as you've said, 50 to 100, but how did you land on that number? Where are you now? Where are you headed? We talked about about the geos as well. Also, what portfolio companies do you currently have that many would know, that kind of thing? Yeah, sure. So as I said, my aim is to build a portfolio of between 50 and 100 um, investments. I've currently got somewhere like 30, 25 to 30. I don't know the exact number off the top of my head. My focus up until now has been pretty much exclusively on B2B SaaS and fintech. And ideally, it's the kind of intersection of those two things when people are doing both as part of their business model. I've invested across geographies, so UK, Europe, Middle East, and also the US as well. I guess some of the ones that I have been most uh, lucky to participate in, I love a company called Easel, E-A-S-O-L. I invested in that a couple of years ago. They subsequently raised it from Tiger and are doing really, really well. Anthony and I actually co-invested together not that long ago in uh, Lucas, uh, who is uh, building something called Meetly. They've now changed their name, which has gone from my head, which is Hyperline. Yeah. And quite a few others, which have, you know, which have been uh, subsequently funded by great VCs and, and, other, and other great investors. From a thesis perspective, my view is quite clear, which is need an interesting market, really need to focus on founders. And then the thing I always probably spend the most time on is distribution because I've seen so many great products and great product teams. But I think if you don't either have the DNA to distribute the product or you don't have a credible distribution strategy, it's always hard to get to scale. And so generally when I'm doing diligence, that's what I tend to spend the most time on. And SME distribution is notoriously difficult, right? Especially Europe. I mean, such a fragmented SME landscape. What an SME is in the UK is not in the middle stand in Germany. It's not in France either or the Nordics, right? Yeah. How do you think about portfolio diversification versus capacity to support the founders, right? Because I guess in some respects, volumes help from a diversification perspective, but then capacity is also of importance, right? Again, it's a function of the stage that you're at in building your angel portfolio. My thesis is that at the early stages of building a portfolio, your main focus should be delighting the founders that you've invested in, or at least meeting whatever commitment you made to them when you said you were going to invest in their company. And so to that end, you have to be able to support because if you don't, then you're not building a body of work. You're not living up to whatever commitment you made when you invested. I think once you get beyond a certain stage, and I'm probably going to start to get to it, you know, as, as I get to 40, 50 deals, it gets harder and harder to have that 
kind of relationship with founders where you can go deep on a particular problem or you can talk about something in a great deal of specificity. But I think you can only earn the right to be in that point if you've done the hard yards at the beginning. And so I don't think I'm yet at the point where I care about portfolio diversification. I'm still at the stage where I care about just doing what I said I was going to do and, and hopefully delighting the founders who've let me invest. Literally just before jumping on this call, I was talking to another angel in the European ecosystem where I think many would recognize as at least very active and prominent, but his investment strategy is three to five deals per year. I don't want to do more than that. I don't want to dive too deep on too many. And I don't believe that I have the capacity to see more than probably 100 deals per year. I spoke to him about it in the uh, you know light of this Super Angel podcast has, you know, we're really focusing on the, on the angels that do tend to do in the numbers of 20 deals per year or so. So I'd love to hear your take on that decision between how many deals you want to do and, you know, on the deal flow side or, or the diligence side, there's also work to be done there, right? Yeah. So my view on this is I'm not a professional investor. I'm, I'm basically a glorified hobbyist. And with that in mind, I'm not sure I necessarily have any differentiated ability to know which three or five deals are going to be the right three or five deals to invest in. With that in mind, I then think the thing to try and do is optimize for whatever number you think is the minimum viable portfolio size that you have to get to in order to give yourself the opportunity of getting a fund returner in that sample size. So hence why I think my preference is the bigger portfolio size. I think the trade-off I have to make then is diligence can only be so deep. And usually the SLA I set myself is I try and have a view on whether I want to invest or not within a couple of days, you know, or at least a weekend from having spoken to somebody. And also, you know, realizing very clearly that you are writing a small check, you therefore have very little right to demand anything that the founder doesn't already have or hasn't already prepared for other stuff. So I basically say a lot of the diligence I should be able to do in a call or very quickly thereafter. And I'm, you know, happy then to make my mind up quite fast and not, you know, go through a protracted process of figuring stuff out. The trade-off then is that, you know, I'm not seeing thousands of deals. So therefore the conversion rate on stuff that I have conversations with is pretty high. But again, I'm happy to tolerate that because I think the approach I want to take is to have a slightly bigger sample size and, and give myself a chance of having a few outliers in that population. Yeah. And certainly for me, um, I generally find that entry points after seed start getting a bit punchy from a valuation perspective. And so I'm very much at the pre-seed or seed stage of the cap table. When you choose to say, okay, I'm comfortable having DD light, obviously, right? It gets all the more difficult not to also rely on strong signals from other co-investors or established investors. How do you think about that? I think it's a really hard trade to make. And you know, as I mentioned beforehand, a lot of my deal flow will come from people who I consider to be better investors than me. I think it's one of the biggest potential mistakes that I could make as an investor, as an angel, which is basically to get FOMO and, and just welly in wherever you see some top tier you know, in, investor going in first. The reality is, as you know, Anthony will say, is that even the best VCs only have a very small proportion of their portfolio actually going on to be the le level of success that they want to be. And so my view is, of course, you take signal from what people refer to you and what they say, but you also have to have a point of view. 
I'm happy, Anthony knows this, I'm happy to disagree and say, I don't see the value in this, or I don't really understand, you know, why you guys are so excited. Because there's also part of the reason for doing angel investing. It's partly also an intellectual exercise, which is to think about it, you know, get conviction or not, and then have the courage to be able to say, actually, sorry, guys, I I disagree with you on on that. I think the part on the co-investing side and relying on other people's decisions or signal value or whatever, I think there's an important part to double click on there or maybe just underline, which is some tend to think of it as a lazy approach or that your own intellectual integrity is kind of on the line when you just follow others. But fact of the matter is that the majority of angels are, as you said, a glorified hobbyist. For that reason, there's no one who's going to clap you or pat you on the shoulder for making up your own decision and doing everything in a vacuum. That's not what this game is about. Oftentimes, it's the opposite, right? Because the people that are you're looking for signals slash sparring on a deal with are looking on uh, for the same from, from you on their deals, right? So in that sense, it's more thinking of yourself as part of a symbiotic network where everyone is benefiting from acknowledging that that there is power in the network. Anthony, I can see you want to come in on this, so feel free. I think you can partly solve for that from a sourcing perspective, right? Like Pranav said, right? You have a network of people you trust that are close to you that source deals for you. So already you're leveraging, you know, whether it's people that do it full time or people that are within the networks that are partly, let's say, qualifying one layer of your top of funnel. And then kind of you build your own conviction as part of that, which I think is quite interesting regardless. I think it really depends what you're actually doing angel investing for. So if you're doing it purely to get exposure to the asset class, to be honest, my view is you should just be an LP. You know, if you just want to get exposure to pre-seed as an asset class, go give a pre-seed fund the money that you would allocate to it and let them go and invest in 100 deals on your behalf or whatever number of deals on your behalf. Whereas if you're saying, actually, part of the reason I'm doing this is financial, of course it is, it's an asset, but part of it is learning, part of it is networking, part of it is whatever, then, you know, what you... (laughs) look to get out of it also needs to be a bit different as well. So I I think you have to go back to that point of what's the actual reason you're doing this activity in the first place. And that is the perfect segue to go into a question that I always want to hear our guests on. And that is, how do you think about LP investments? Because they can be, as you said, the way to make sure that you have good diversified exposure, but they can also be strategic relationships that you leverage in your own angel investing. I'd love to hear how you think about it. Yeah, so I've only made one LP investment um, so far. So basically everything else I've done in pre-seed has been direct. I did that because I think those guys are investing in pre-seed across Europe. Uh, and I think pre-seed in Europe is an area that is uh, has the potential for increase in valuation over the next few years. And so they are totally agnostic on sector and so on, and more focused on writing lots of small checks in lots of areas that I don't have access to or don't have visibility of. And so to the extent I've done that, it's mostly just because I wanted to get exposure to the asset class and because I think they have a great network that they can leverage for, for deal flow that I don't have in those, in those areas. But in general, because my objective in doing angel investing is not strictly financial, my preference is to invest you know, myself and that way try and maintain the relationships myself with the founders to you know, do the diligence myself to think about it. You know, if I want to be an investor in the future, as I, you know, maybe maybe I would like to in the future, I want to have the opportunity to force myself through that process. And so um, that's kind of the way I think about it in my own context. And 
why in general, my preference is just direct investments rather than being an LP. You said that VCs are an integral part of your whole ecosystem around your own investing. I'm curious to hear if you could just add a few words to how you build those relationships and how you maintain them and, and so on, because, it, you know, they are an, an important part of the ecosystem. And, and I think that there's many angels out there that are less close to the VC ecosystem than might be advisable. <laughs> I think I've been really lucky. So having been at GoCardless at uh, the time when I was and having benefited from the investors that backed GoCardless and the network that came with that, I was able to you know, get to know a bunch of people in lots of different places. I think you know, the honest thing is that VCs are often looking for people who can help them to take a position on something. And so, again, going back to my point around having a view and, and also having a focus, if you can go to someone and say, hey, look, you're thinking about B2B SaaS and fintech, this is actually an area that I spend all my professional life thinking about. Let me give you a point of view on something. Let me talk to your portfolio company if it's useful. Let me do something that will be value added to your network. Then you can start to build a relationship which is mutually beneficial. My kind of general philosophy is that you have to give something back to people in order to get something from them. Especially when you're early in your angel career, you probably don't have loads and loads of deal flow. Like I would be shocked if I saw more stuff than someone at a top VC fund is already seeing just by virtue of the fact that they've got the brand name and so on. But if you can give them something, then that gives you the basis for a relationship of, if not equality, then at least mutual benefit. If both people aren't getting something out of the relationship, then it's not really a relationship. It's just a, it's a one-way uh, one stream. You out here learning more about them angels, are you? Fair enough. Let's go for it. So looking back, if you had to name three core learnings, what would those be? So I think we've kind of touched on some of them already in the conversation. The first one is you've got to be proactive. Nothing comes to you on its own, you have to be able to go out there, meet people, talk to people, sell yourself in order to get access to the things that you want to get access to. I think the second one, which again, we sort of alluded to is that you want to try and avoid as much as I can investing because of FOMO. And, you know, to the extent you can have a point of view yourself, which is the reason that you're investing and not just because X, Y, or Z has decided to invest on its own. And then I think maybe the third one is that you know, the stage that I invest at, at pre-seed or, or at seed, probably the biggest determinant of company success is the founding team or the founder, depending on how many of them there are. And so even if you have a relatively short conversation, you have to spend the time trying to understand as best you can the signal from the founder or founding team on their emotional maturity, on the way that they work together, on the way that they think, you know, on the way that they deal with adversity or, or have resilience. And I think when I've made mistakes, it's because I've got overexcited about the intellectual capacity or the idea or the precocity of a particular founder and not spent enough time actually going, well, do they really have what it takes emotionally to be as successful as I'd like them to be? So maybe just those three things. I definitely want to double click on the last one. You know, we also say we invest in founders as a thesis at Mikoa. So what are some of the things that you're not really looking for, right? When you're assessing those teams and also conversely, like what would you say are any no-goes or things that you're really kind of alerted when you see? The no-goes are probably easier. The number one no-go is uh, lack of humility. So I think the best founders are unreasonable and very ambitious and 
also accept that what they're setting out to do defies all probability in, in almost every way. But they're also generally pretty humble as well. And they have a view of you know what they're good at and also where their limitations are. And I think I've got better over time at recognizing some of the cues of humility versus the opposite, which is which is arrogance or, or too much pride. The second thing that I always try and, you know, on the opposite, that's something I avoid, something that I look for is I really like to see that people have thought quite carefully about what they know and what they don't know. And so it's impossible when you're building a business to know all the answers to all the potential questions that some random person talking to you for half an hour could ask you about. What I think is a really good signal is A, when they've thought of the question, so you're not asking them something that they've never considered, and B, when they're honest enough to say, actually, you know what, I don't know the answer to that question, or actually, you know what, I don't think that question is actually that important because here's how I think about the other things that are actually going to be a bigger driver of my success or failure or our success or failure in this in this enterprise. And so those are probably the two things. Obviously, you look for understanding the sector. Obviously, you look for the right balance of skills across product and go to market and you know operations or anything else in the founding team. But really, for me, the two things are how thoughtful are they? How much of a point of view do they have? And then on the opposite side, you know, do they have the humility to mean that they can both be unreasonable, but also humble in, in, in the way they go about their business? I mean, we also say we love to see founders that are very much kind of obsessed, right? So it's like, you know, the won't stop, can't stop mentality, whether it's naturally the problem they've seen or something else. It doesn't need to be that storytelling, but that like drive and obsession when all odds are against you. And there's so many reasons why you'll stop that journey. You'll just keep going, right? And because persistence is a very, very good I guess, predictor of success uh, in some respects in those in the circumstances. So that's just one to add. But yeah, thank you for sharing. I couldn't agree more on the, that side. And us investing in VCs, it's so fun because we're seeing the same thing. A good VC has the same traits. So it's, <laughs> it's actually quite interesting to see as well. So I have another question, which is you said the part about avoiding investing because of FOMO. And that has definitely been, so you've been through two years of school, right? <laughs> For sure. I'd love to hear what tricks you've learned there and, and what are you you know, really keeping your eye out for to avoid investing because of FOMO? There's only one thing, which is you just have to ask yourself, what is your point of view? Why would you do this? I think the acid test for me is, you know, all things being equal, would I refer this deal without the kind of hallmark or stamp of so-and-so is investing? to somebody whose opinion I trust? If the answer to that is yes, then it probably is a deal that you would do, we should do, regardless of who else is in there. But if the answer to it is no, if you take away whatever tier one VC has been leading the round, and at that point, you couldn't pitch it, I couldn't pitch it to Anthony and say, this is why I'm investing, then you probably shouldn't be in it. Right up, let's hit the button that signals that we go to our quickfire sec. First question, what is the most counterintuitive thing you've learned since you started angel investing? Good question. Probably try not to worry too much about valuation within you know, whatever limit you set yourself. If you start by optimizing for all the stuff like tax relief and you know, da, 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 then the tail and the dog are not wagging each other in the right order. 
that would be my thing. Try not to worry too much about valuation within your limit of tolerance. Not many have said that, especially coming out of the year. So I like that you say it because I do think that it's an important point that, especially in the angel segment, you see a quite strong inclination to do. So second question, what would be your top tip to angels wanting to do more international investments? I think you just got to be proactive. Uh, you've got to get yourself out there, build relationships with the people that you can Uh, that you think will be able to give you access to the deals that you want to do. As I said, try and lean into something that gives you a reason to be useful for the people that you want to invest in. I don't think there's anything else to it than that. Final question. What advice would you give to your own 10-year younger self if you only had 30 seconds? Take more risk. <laughs> it'll, probably, it'll probably be okay. I come from an immigrant background. I was born in, in India, moved to this country as a child. And I think like many immigrants, my parents always instilled in me, you know, the golden rule is don't stuff it up. You know, we've worked so hard. We've got you to this country. We've given you a good education. Don't stuff it up. And uh, it took me a long time in my career to, to get to the point where I realized that probably going to be fine. So to take a bit more risk. Well, thanks for joining us for now. Ecosystem is definitely better off from having people like you supporting the next generation. So thank you. Thank you very much for having me, both of you. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Super Angel Podcast, the go-to podcast for angels backing the next generation of European unicorn founders. If you love our show, do drop us a review, share it with your friends and join our Angel LP syndicate at eu.vc. And if you're an angel listening in and wanting to get closer to the European angel scene, please do not hesitate to reach out to us. We'd love to connect and see how we can play together. And now, some words from our beloved sponsor. Vaban from Carter is the easiest way to launch and run your syndicate. Vaban's end-to-end platform automates your back office so you can focus on what matters, supporting the next generation of entrepreneurs and building your network. Angel investors are the fuel to innovation, and they've created the Atom SPV to allow for more deals, more ownership, and less fees. Backed by Carter, the leading fintech infrastructure company, Vaban will be with you all from fundraising to exit. Investors on the Vaban platform have raised over $2.5 billion in global investments for companies including Revolut, Bolt, and SpaceX. If you'd like to learn more, please check out www.vaban.io forward slash EUVC. You've been touched by an angel, girl.